If the church didn't allow sinners in, the pews would be empty, and so would the pulpit. As we get into the topic for tonight, one, it's the Last Supper. So if you saw the Da Vinci painting, um, you kind of know what it looks like, except it doesn't look anything like that. But that's our topic for tonight. And the fact that it's not happening on our first of the month communion night, I don't know how I feel about that. It feels weird that this isn't the topic for communion night, but I'm also appreciative of the fact that we're just going through and whatever is in front of us, we're dealing with regardless of our schedule. Um, so that I kind of like, but as we're dealing with the last supper, um, there's a question that rings through my head, something I've given a bit of thought to. If you could plan your last meal, what would it be? If you knew it was going to be your last meal, what would it be? And now for me, I think, and just so you know, it's ridiculous. So be prepared. But there was at one point in time in the town next to mine, this little spot that couldn't sustain a place. It seemed like there was five different restaurants there in the course of four years. But one of them was amazing. Now, there was this guy from Tennessee who moved to New York. Let me repeat that, because I don't think you fully understand how silly that is. There's a man from Tennessee who moved to Western New York um, why? But he did, and I'm so grateful. But he, he, he was amazing. Now, he opened this little restaurant at this spot that just seemed to completely have turnover after turnover after turnover. And I went in there. My family and I went in there one, one day, and I ordered a cheeseburger because that's how I rate restaurants. If it's good, then I know that I'll come back, and I'll try other things. And this was easily the greatest cheeseburger I've ever eaten in my life. I didn't know that hamburger could be cooked that well, ever. It was unbelievable. And he, being from Tennessee, makes his own Tennessee barbecue sauce, like homemade barbecue sauce. And this is the whole meal, okay? Now I ordered this cheeseburger. It's got bacon on top of it. It's got pulled pork on top of the cheeseburger. Cheese, it's got his homemade barbecue sauce. The owner, the guy who does all of this, comes out to our table and says, are you guys enjoying yourselves? He's a brand new business, just trying to get established. And I tell him, this is the best cheeseburger I've ever had in my life. I can't believe this. And so he says, oh, then let me show you this. He walks back into the kitchen and he starts coming out with sample after sample. Like every 30 seconds, he's got something new in his hand for us to try. He's giving us his homemade mac and cheese recipe, which I've never had anything that good again. He's bringing out his brisket, which tasted like beef bacon. It was just, it was so good. 
And he just keeps coming out with, now, if it were me, that would be what I would choose as the last meal, this amazing cheeseburger. In fact, unfortunately, his, this restaurant closed, not because he couldn't be successful, but because, unfortunately, his wife came down with cancer, and he couldn't do the business and take care of his wife, and so they moved back to Tennessee, and then I wrote a eulogy to the cheeseburger. <laughs> in a company newsletter that from the job that I had because I was so sad that I would never, nothing that hits my taste buds will ever taste that good again. And it was a sad day to know that every dining experience is downhill from that point forward. <laughs> so if I could plan my last meal, that's what I would plan. Now I did hear something very recently when someone was asked that question, their response, made me feel really guilty for thinking that. Because his response was communion. And I thought, way to outdo the rest of us, man. <laughs> but the interesting thing about that question is, now we're in John 13, but all four Gospels cover this and give us a different angle of that night. In Luke 22, Jesus actually says, and I'll share this with you. Jesus says to them in Luke 22, verses 15 and 16, Jesus says to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, who is God and has control, over these things. He plans his last meal. And his meal is Passover and the institution of communion. So this guy who responded with his answer of communion gave the same answer Jesus did. He had a deep desire to have this last meal with his disciples before the crucifixion. Now, we're going to talk about what happened at that meal. Now, this is the night. This is the last night. This is the last supper before the crucifixion. This is the last night before Jesus gets arrested this evening and goes off to the cross. But this is covered for the next like six chapters. So there's a lot of detail we're going to dig into over the coming weeks. And this is the beginning of it. John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, which Jesus desperately wanted to have with his disciples, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. He rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. This is the scene. Supper is going on. This meal that he's desperately wanted to have with his disciples. He's fully aware that Judas has already decided to betray him as he's leaning at the table with Judas and the rest of his disciples. 
Jesus lays aside his tunic, grabs a towel, and everyone is looking like, what on earth is happening here? Because normally what would happen is the servant of the household or wherever you were would be the one who would wash everyone's feet before the meal. Or if there was no servant in that household, you would just wash each other's feet. But Jesus, after, he, after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. So everyone is looking. Jesus, their rabbi, whom they serve, who they now know to be the Messiah, who they see as the Son of God, they're aware of that. And he's doing the servant's work. And they're confounded and confused. They don't understand this moment. And this moment, so beautiful. And it's such an interesting thing, because the last time we saw Jesus having dinner was just a couple chapters ago. And he was eating dinner at Simon the leper's house. And Mary came and poured oil on Jesus' head and his feet and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair in worship to him. So the last time we see Jesus, someone is in submission and in total worship to him and preparing him for the burial because she knows that Jesus is heading to the grave. And then a complete flipping of the script. Jesus isn't the one being served, but Jesus is the one who is the servant. And he comes and he washes the disciples' feet in an opposite of the parallel of what Mary did for him. The weird thing is Mary was preparing Jesus for burial. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what they're going to need to do once he's buried. So Jesus answered and said, said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now. Now I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Which, by the way, that's a, that's a good question. A little obvious, Peter. He's got a towel on your feet. But that's not what he's asking. He's not asking if he's actually doing the the washing, he's saying, what is, he's confused about the, the roles here. Peter serves Jesus, and he's saying, what are you doing? Why are you washing my feet? And Jesus answers him and says, I am doing, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter says to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Imagine the audacity. This is Peter. This is Peter to a core. Peter is so just off. He thinks he can tell Jesus what he's going to do. Um, now, we've all been there. Sometimes in our own prayers, we try to tell God what his plan is. That's not how it works. But Peter, in his silliness, and he's sort of an emotional outburst kind of guy, he likes to think before, or he likes to speak before he thinks. He's quick to speak and slow to listen in opposite of what God desires us to be. He wants us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And Peter's the opposite. 
He says, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus responds to him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And then Peter, again, responds in a silly way. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. So this is Peter. He acts without information. He just always wants to say the right thing, but he doesn't know what the right thing is. And so he says to Jesus, you can't wash my feet. I serve you. And Jesus responds and says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And so then Peter responds with the little bit of information he's given. Instead of listening for what Jesus is going to say, he just responds and he acts. And he says, well, then if that's the case, wash my hands and my head too. And he goes from one side of the pendulum to the other. And he goes to the two extremes before he listens to what Jesus has to say. Now Jesus responds in the beauty of his patience, which, thank God we have a God like Jesus who is this patient with us. If he was this patient with Peter, thank goodness he's that patient with us. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. So, Jesus makes an interesting point. He points out Judas. He knows that Judas is going to betray him, so he knows he's not talking to him. The rest of the guys have no idea what's going on. But he does say this. If you are bathed, if you've been washed, then the only part of you that's dirty is your feet from walking around. So before we eat, we will wash the feet. Now the reason that they would do this is because it's not like a table today. You're not sitting in chairs. What they would do is sit at like a U-shaped table and they would sit around the outer edge of the table, um, but they would be leaning on the ground. They would lean on their left shoulder, because most people are right-handed, all the way around the table. And so someone's feet could be near your face while you're eating, which would be gross if they were dirty. So they'd wash the feet. And he says, you're clean. But this is a, this is a really good picture of salvation. This is what Jesus is giving us, a beautiful picture of salvation. He says, if you're bathed, you need only to wash your feet because you're completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. So what he's telling Peter is you're clean, you're justified in me. And so when you receive Christ, when you believe in him and you repent from sin, and you follow Christ, you are completely clean. You are considered clean, but your feet still need to be washed, and that's called sanctification. You're justified. You are saved by the grace of Jesus, but now you will be on the process of being changed from the inside out, and you will, even though you're completely clean in God's eyes, your life will now continue to get cleaned up by the process of sanctification. And that's what Jesus is illustrating for us. He said, for he knew who would betray him before he said, you are not all clean. He's speaking of Judas. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. And so what he's saying is, if Jesus, who is clearly above us, 
He's divine. God in the flesh is willing to be a servant. Then we're not above Jesus. If he was willing to humble himself and be a servant to us, then we should be a servant to others because we don't stand above Jesus. He was willing to humble himself, so we should be willing to humble ourselves and care for others in the way that Jesus cared for us. He says, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. He's repeating it, saying, you should do as I have done to you. If I, who am the master, become the servant, then you have no reason to not serve others. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who, sent, who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats the bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives, whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now Jesus is saying a lot there. He's saying the father has sent him. And there is no real delineation between the Father and the Son. They are one. And if you receive Jesus, you receive God the Father. But unfortunately, in this group, Jesus knows that not everyone has. And so when Jesus had said these things, verse 21, he was troubled in his spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now this what a moment. Now, Jesus, he shows off all of his nature here. He is God in the flesh. He is divine. And so he has this omniscient ability to know what people are thinking and to know what's coming. And he knows that someone will betray him. But we see the full humanity on display here. Because even as God, as someone who knows that someone will betray him, as someone who knows that he will be raised from the dead, and he knows the people that he loves and have chosen, he's troubled in his spirit because he has to experience betrayal in real time. It's, it's interesting. Jesus experiences this as a human being in the flesh. He experiences betrayal in real time. And as a resurrected person, he's still God and man. He's a resurrected eternal man bodily resurrection, still as a human. And he still intercedes for us as a human in heaven. But he's also fully divine. And this interesting display gives us that picture of Jesus as fully divine and fully human. And going through that experience and that emotion in real time makes him troubled in the spirit, even though he's fully aware of all that comes from it. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. And as usual, the disciples are confused. They have no idea what's going on. And now we read these stories and we think to ourselves, how could they not know what's going on? The disciples were with Jesus 24-7 for three and a half years. Uh, nobody knew him better than the disciples. How could they be confused? 
And it's because we're looking at the story as an outsider, but if we looked at the story in our own lives and how we follow God in general, there have been a lot of times where God was speaking very clearly and I didn't hear him. I think that's true of all of us. I know that I spent a couple of years trying to figure out what I was doing, and I was ignoring the call to ministry that I had. I had recently gotten married. We had been talking about how in the future we want to have children, which you know now we have. And I, I was just so concerned about taking care of my family, helping us reduce our debt, that I got consumed with corporate work and how I could earn money and what I could do to take care of my family and play the provider role and make sure that I was playing my part and participating in the family and doing what I should be doing. And in the midst of all of that, I was dealing with some issues at work, ethical issues, where I didn't like sort of the direction that the company was taking us. And I didn't know what to do. And Juliet looked at me. And she said, when are you going to search for a job in ministry? And I hadn't thought about it for a couple of years. I got so consumed with my own life, and God is shouting out at me, and I'm not listening. And then he speaks very clearly through my wife. When are you going to start looking for a job in ministry like you said you would? And I did. I started applying for jobs in ministry. And there was a church that refused to even look at my resume, to even interview me. And they told me it was because I didn't have enough experience, which is the most lame excuse you can give to someone who's trying to get a job. How are you supposed to get experience if no one will hire you? And also, I have 20 years of experience as a volunteer and an intern and with a degree. What do you mean I have no experience? You're not even willing to listen to what experience I've given you. Did you even look at my resume? And that was my attitude. And then another church, they put me through four rounds of interviews because I was looking to, they had two positions open for youth ministry. And I went through four rounds of interviews as they were narrowing down their candidates. And it came down to the final round in my last interview. And I just missed the cut by one or two people of the hundreds of applicants they had. And I asked them, why? Like, if I'm continuing to search for a job in ministry, what did I do wrong? What did I not convey to you that this is the calling that I have in my life? What could I have done differently in the interview process? And he told me that I wasn't, I didn't seem confident enough that if I was applying for a job for their church, I needed to be very clear as to why I was the man for the job. And I needed to tell them how I knew that I was exactly what they were missing. And I took that information with me, and uh, I was pretty depressed about that. And then someone told me that there was a church that was looking for a youth pastor that hadn't even posted the job yet. And uh, I said, well, all right, I'm kind of depressed, but I'll see. And I sent out an email to that church. They got back to me confused because I apparently knew about the job before they posted it. 
And they brought me in, and I told them that story. I told them about that interview that I had and the response that I got and how I had been thinking about that response. And I said, I'm so glad I didn't get the job at that church. Because that's the answer I would have given 10 years ago. What I would have told them 10 years ago is why I was the right person for the job, because I had a whole lot more pride before I got kicked around in the real world. I thought I was God's answer to Western New York, and a spiritual revival was going to be lifted upon my shoulders because of my great love for God. What a silly human being I was. God doesn't need me. I need him. How lucky I am that he's decided to use me in any way to proclaim his gospel at all. And I, I, I die to do it. But he doesn't need me. And I refuse to tell someone in a spiritual leadership position that I'm their answer. Because I'm not. Jesus is the answer. But it was that moment where I was completely humbled and thinking, I might be out of the running for this job too, but I'm going to be honest. And I got that job. And, uh, well, you know the rest of the story. Out of that, this church was born a couple years later. But the disciples perplexed. I had no idea what was going on in that moment in my life. Neither did they. It wasn't until all the pieces came together where they saw it clearly. And I can look back and say the same thing. It all makes sense now. It didn't make sense at the time. Now, verse 23, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom. There was one who was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Which, by the way, that's John, the writer of this gospel, um, and that's what he calls himself through this gospel, the one whom Jesus loved. He's right. Now, if, if I had gone through that experience and, and through that time period in my life where God was clearly speaking to me, but I wasn't listening, if I thought more like that, I probably would have been listening clearer to what God was saying to me because... I really need to understand that I'm, I'm the one who, God's, who God loves. And by the way, so are you. You are the one that God loves. If you think about that, before you make the next step, you're probably going to be listening clearer. Because God's not against you. God loves you. And so the one whom Jesus loves, John is leaning against Jesus' chest, as they're leaning on their left shoulder during the meal, John is right next to him on his right, leaning on Jesus. That's important. It's an important part of the picture. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him and asked who it was of whom he spoke, meaning who's the person that's going to betray you? Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? John asks Jesus, who? Who's the betrayer? Jesus answered, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now we get the picture. 
John is to Jesus' right, confused about what he's saying. Who is the one who will betray you? Jesus says, it's the person to whom I give the bread to. Now, Jesus is the host of this dinner. He's the leader at the table. And so the first person he hands bread to is directly to his left. That's Judas. And if they're all leaning on their left arm around the table, John is leaning into Jesus. Judas is leaning away from Jesus. Interesting picture, isn't it? And he hands the piece of bread to Judas. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now everyone's confused. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought that because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And so what they're thinking is because Judas was the one who oversaw the money, that Jesus was telling Judas to go take care of the poor. And that was something you would do around Passover time. If there was someone who couldn't afford the meal or was poor or needed help, you would provide that for them. And so they think Judas is off doing good works. That Jesus is sending Judas out to do good works. He's not, but it works out for our good because Judas is betraying Jesus. And because Judas betrays Jesus, we have salvation. Now, having received the bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Now, what a seemingly unimportant statement. Judas goes out in the nighttime. But in John's gospel, that's important. John talks about darkness and light. John starts out in the first chapter talking about how Jesus is the light of the world and the light of life. Jesus says multiple times in the Gospel of John that he is the light of the world. And interestingly, as soon as Judas is away from Jesus' presence, he's in darkness. That is a truth that rings through eternity. Outside of Jesus' presence is darkness. And Judas, the one who is leaning away from Jesus, walks out the door, and now it's night. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. So the picture here is there's a lot of glory going around, and it's Jesus. Jesus will be glorified. And he says, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now this phrase is interesting, and Jesus is summing up some of the points he's already made. He made the point physically with washing their feet and pointing out that they should wash each other's feet because the master, the servant isn't greater than the master. And if the master is willing to serve, then so should you. And so what he says, I have a new commandment for you. It's not really a new commandment. 
He's taking a commandment they know, the commandment that you should love your neighbor as yourself, and he's giving it a whole lot of new pressure. He's revising the commandment, not changing what it always meant, but giving it an example to live by. He's saying, as I have loved you, that's what I mean by loving one another. If you were wondering what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself, now you know. Love the way that Jesus loved. Be willing to humble yourself and be a servant because you're not above Jesus. Be willing to sacrifice of yourself because Jesus was willing to sacrifice himself for you. And that's the commandment he gives to his disciples. And he says, by this you will know, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what people should see from followers of Jesus is a sacrificial servant type of love. That's what the church should look like. And that's his command. And when the church acts like that, the world can see Jesus and know that we really love him. And now a different moment takes place. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Always with the questions, Peter, he doesn't get it. It will make sense eventually that Jesus is going to the cross and he's experiencing death and then being raised from the dead and they can't, they can't go with him. But he says, Peter says, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you shall follow me afterward. Jesus gives him all the information he needs. You can't come with me now, but you will see me soon and you will follow me afterwards. But Peter says, again, speaking without listening, quick to speak, slow to listen, slow to learn. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered, answered him and said, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly. Now that I'm going to stop halfway through that verse because Jesus is affirming what Peter's saying. Peter said, Jesus, I would die for you. And Jesus says, You will. That's a big deal. Jesus knows the future. And he's telling Peter, yeah, you will. And Peter does. In fact, later on in Peter's life, he's tortured because he refuses to denounce the resurrection of Jesus. And he chooses to be crucified upside down because he doesn't think he's worthy of the same death as his Lord. But that's down the road. And he says, most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall crow the rooster shall not crow until you've denied me three times. And he tells Peter, Peter with all of his fervor, with all of his emotion, and all of the love that he tries to display for Jesus, he tells him, the rooster, you won't hear a rooster crow. Morning won't come until you've denied me three times. What does this tell us? Well, one, it tells us a little bit about Peter and that, yeah, once again, he speaks before he listens. And that's a fault that a lot of us have. But the more important point, I think, is this. Jesus is fully aware 
and not surprised by our failures. Jesus didn't love Peter any less because he knew that Peter was going to be a coward that night. Jesus was not surprised by the fact that Peter would let him down that night. But it wasn't counted against him for eternity because Jesus knew Peter's heart and that he would repent from that and follow Jesus in a capacity that nearly none of the other disciples really did. Peter was a force to be reckoned with after the resurrection. And so, yeah, we have a lot of things that we could go to the cross and be ashamed of before Jesus. There isn't a single person in this room that is perfect. In fact, this is what I'll say. If the church didn't allow sinners in, the pews would be empty, and so would the pulpit. Because we're all sinners. We all have things we're embarrassed and ashamed of, but God is not surprised by our failure or turned off by it. He's aware. That's actually the point. Jesus was headed to the cross because of our failure. He's not ashamed of it. He embraced it because he understands the sin in our lives, and he chose to bear the brunt of our punishment on the cross so that we could be reconciled with him. You don't have to be ashamed of your past. You don't have to be ashamed of decisions. You can understand that they were wrong. You can repent and turn to God and follow him, and you're forgiven. The problem only comes when you decide to hold on to it yourself and think you can propel yourself past Jesus. You can't. Jesus bore the brunt of our failure and our sin on the cross for you. He did it knowing full well the failure that exists within all of us, for us, because Jesus loved us. In fact, he asks us to love one another like that. People in your life will let you down. People in your life will fail you. Some of them will be your enemies. Jesus tells you to pray for them. He tells you to love them sacrificially anyway. So what do we get out of all of this? We see so much. One, it's better to be leaning into Jesus than away from him. Because out of Jesus' presence is darkness, in his presence is light. And when we stumble, he's not surprised. All he wants for you is repentance and turn yourself back to him because he loves you. And that's the point of the cross. And in Jesus' words, he desired deeply to have this moment, this meal with his disciples because he knew he wouldn't eat of it again until the kingdom of God was fulfilled, until his return. That means that Jesus, as much as he fervently desired to have this meal with his disciples, he fervently desires to have it with you when he returns as well, to share a meal with the Savior because he loves you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. You are a perfect father. 
you love us so much and you give us an opportunity to love you back. God, I pray that we take that chance, that we repent from our failures, that we repent from our sin and turn our hearts to you. And as we move forward in life, that we remember it's better to be leaning into you than away from you. Help us stay in the presence of the light of the world and help us to be humbled, to remember as great as you are, you are willing to serve. We're not greater than you and you expect us to serve and expect us to love the way that you love. So help us serve those in need. In Jesus' name, amen.